All right, guys, welcome back to the Love Well podcast. Glad you are with me this week. We are continuing our series on uh, real talk and real people. Uh, this week with my my good friend, man, we've been friends for a very long time, uh, Jermaine Chapman. And uh, so before we dive into this conversation, just want to remind you guys, still can never figure out how to do this. Um, Subscribe uh, to Love Well at DanielMRose.com. That way, everything I write or um, you know publish via audio or whatever shows up in your inbox. So subscribe there. You can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Daniel M Rose, and um, uh, the archive of uh, this conversation will be at YouTube.com/slash Daniel Rose. So. Uh, Today's guest, Jermaine Chapman, you can follow him on Twitter at Jermaine C. And I'm, I, I was just telling him I'm super jealous that he got such a great Twitter name. So uh, it just proves that he's older than me, that's all, yeah. um, which, which kind of works out well because at this point, I don't know how many people really are older than me. So um, Jermaine, man, it is, it's good to see your face. It's been, it's been too long and uh, yeah. Yeah, so we we got to know each other um, when I was dating Amy. Yep. Uh, yeah, because Jermaine is a uh, he's an IU grad, and uh, yep. he and Amy were involved with crew at uh, at Indiana University together. And uh, he, Jermaine and I just kind of hit it off right right off the yeah right off the jump. Um, and so. and Amy always said that you know we we work together we're on the leadership team uh, for our, our crew movement and so she always talked about this guy at Central Michigan which at the time I didn't even know uh, was a school right it's um, <laughs> like oh you'll love him oh you'll love him you know and it's it's like uh, you know people say that all the time it's like oh right. yeah, actually I really do I really yeah. do love this guy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah turns out he he really is okay oh gosh so. Yeah, man. I, I just, you, me, and Jason Van Horn, uh, we had entirely too much fun uh, yeah. when I would come up and visit. So, or down and visit. Yeah, it was down. Yep. It's still down. So, uh, Jermaine, where where are you at now? I live in sunny uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, we've been here. We just celebrated two years, uh, two days ago. Um okay. And before that, I was in Indianapolis, which I'm a Hoosier native, so that's where I've lived most of my life. Um, but the headquarters of Campus Crusade for Christ crew is down here in Orlando, and that's where we're now serving. So we we made the move a couple of years ago to work at the office here. Okay, very cool. And uh, so you grew up you grew up in Indiana. Uh, yep. So just just give us a, a sense of kind of. Kind of what what growing up was like for you? Where where in Indiana? Um, you know, because Amy's also from Indiana, but she is from the polar opposite of. <laughs> I mean, literally, like geographically, the opposite. I know of where of where you grew up. Oh so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, um, and to give you an idea of of what that was like for me, uh, you know, I grew up around you know, uh, all black people. I had, um, this is my daughter. I saw her. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had all black teachers growing up. Um, you know, I, I did, the way I put it, I didn't realize I was an ethnic minority until I was 14 years old. 
Mm. Um, and I did not live it, you know, I did not experience it or have any place where I experienced that until I first arrived in Bloomington um, for college at Indiana University. Um, my mom uh, stayed at home with us as kids. My dad was a steel worker. Um, steel is the main industry in Indiana, uh, in Gary, Indiana. And when the steel left, the town became depressed. Um, but my dad had been there for a while. Uh, and so um, great stable home. Um, another something that, you know, you have to know about me and, and it fits into kind of like the grander scheme of my story is that, um, you know, I've got two siblings, a uh, brother and a sister uh, who are older than me. And so they were born um, in the early 60s. I was born in 72. Um, and so between their births and mine, uh, you had the passage of the Civil Rights Voting Act, uh, the end of Jim Crow slavery. I mean, not slavery, segregation. <clears throat> and um, my parents, they, they uh, lived that, you know? So like, um, you know, it, they loved all three of us. Um, they gave us all the opportunities. But when I was born, you know, I was born as one who was ho with, with hope. So it's almost like um, being an immigrant to a new country. And so I was the first one born in the new country. And so, uh, you know, I was raised with this thought, hey, we live in a new society, in a new world. Um, you know, uh, college was never an option. It, it was not an op it was not optional. I, I didn't know it was optional. Uh, the way I found out that college was actually optional was uh, Thanksgiving break, my freshman year of high, I mean, my freshman year of college, I came home and I hung out with friends who didn't go to college. And it was the first time and I was like, whoa, that you can do that? I didn't know. I didn't know that was. It was yeah. like it was just drilled into me, you know. Like right. after you're done with high school, you go to college. Right. Um, these are the so rules. you know. These are that. That's the society that we live in. That's, that, right. that's how you do things. Um, you know. So so there was that educational aspect of it. Um, you know, my mom came to Christ when I was nine months old, uh, and so there was also a deep faith in our home. My dad was raised in a Baptist church in the South, um, but most of my childhood didn't go to church, but reinforced every church role and, and everything that my mom said. And so, you know, Sunday morning, uh, Sunday evening, Monday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, anytime the church doors were open, we were there. And so um, that was a huge part of, you know, my upbringing, um, you know, and, and it was a black church. I mean, like a, like a for real black church, like hands, hand clapping, foot stomping, um, start at 11, end at three, uh, and you just don't know any better. Um, that was, that was a great service. I, when I got to Bloomington and I went to church and it was done in 58 minutes, I was, I was, I was both disappointed and excited simultaneously. It was like, <laughs> where's the rest of the service? But then it was also like, I got the rest of the day free, you know? So that's right. That's right. Uh, that's, I, 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 I preached in one of my buddy's churches here. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm a white guy, you know, 25 minute sermon. Right. <laughs> and, and I get done preaching and he stands up and he says, brother, you preached almost long enough for me to get saved. <laughs> and then he went on and gave another 25 minute message yes. after that. <laughs> it's very <funny>. common. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, man. It's all coming together for me. Now. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was a beautiful thing because, you know, the church was, that was our community. That's where we all came together. Um, so it was it was 
not just a worship service. It was, you know, a family meal. It was youth service. It was, uh, man, it, it was our community. And, and, you know, some of my, I mean, obviously some of my oldest, deepest friends go, um, come from those times, uh, being, being at that little, little rinky dink storefront church, uh, in Gary, Indiana. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's what it was like for me growing up in the, the part of Indiana that, that I did. And then moving, you know, not moving, but going to college in Bloomington, you know, was obvious culture shock um, to be on a campus where I'm, I'm uh, with people who live in the same state that I do and have such a different culture for me um, right. was a huge shock. And it's funny because, you know, um, I had a cousin that was, uh, he's three years older than me. So he was in college ahead of me. Um, and, you know, he tried to give me the briefing, hey, it's going to be culture shock. You're going to experience things you've never seen before here, you know. Um, and, and despite all of the verbal prep, it just doesn't really prepare you for um, when you've been immersed in one way of living for so long. Uh, no amount of verbal prep can get you ready for experiencing another culture. Um, you know, and I feel really fortunate in that, you know, it was something that for some people it's overwhelming. It's like, I can't take this. Uh, I, I need to go somewhere else. You know, there's a famous story about uh, NBA legend, Larry Bird, uh, doing basically the same thing that I did, leaving uh, the comforts of his home to go to Indiana University in Bloomington. And for him, the culture shock was so great that he's like, I can't do this. So he right. went over to Indiana State. Um, and, he but was I, a, and he was a white guy. And he's a white guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blo- Bloomington is not just culture shock for black folks. Bloomington oh, is culture shock for <laughs> for so many. Yeah, people. it's well, and it and, you know, being an institution like that, you're bringing people from all over the state. And Indiana, you know, you think corn, but it's actually a really diverse state. Mm-hmm. Um, given you know, it, Gary, Northwest Indiana's proximity to Chicago, and then Southern Indiana's proximity towards you know the old South. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a huge, it, it's a class of clash of cultures. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I felt really fortunate in that, you know, meeting new people um, and being in new settings and new cultures was something that I actually, I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed, and, and I still do, um, meeting people and learning new cultures and learning new uh, traditions, um, things like that. Uh, right. being, being the cultural outsider doesn't, uh, isn't that something I'm afraid of? Yeah. Yeah, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. So, all right. So you, in what you just explained to us, you know, that as you shared your story, I mean, you blew out like every kind of like stereotype, right. Of, of what it would have been like to grow up in the, in the seventies and eighties in a predominantly black community you had a two-parent home stay-at-home mom working dad your you know your you know people went to college it was yeah. it was like going to college was the normal experience um it, like all of that kind of shatters a lot of the a lot of the other stereotypes out there um which in some ways you know in some of the conversations that i have with with some friends um, who kind of push against ideas of systemic racism, that kind of thing. They're like, hey, you know, that, that, it's all, we live in America, people can go to college, all, you know, like all, mm-hmm. all the opportunities are in front of you. Your story kind mm-hmm. of supports their 
kind of their their argument that systemic racism and that kind of stuff is it's just it's just a myth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so when you hear that, how do you? I, mean, I can see it on your face. You're like it's hurting you on the inside as I'm just even saying this. So so as you as you hear that, like what 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 comes to your mind? Um, you know, as you hear some of that, because I'm sure you've you've had those conversations yeah. with other people. Yeah, and and people think they've got me figured out, you know, right away when when I when I start off with that. You know, life was hard. Um, I lived in a rough neighborhood, um, but you know, it, like I said, the neighborhood was a community, um, and so you know, one of the things is that I, I would never have said as a kid that I, I was in a gang or that I hung out with gangs. But, you know, essentially the friends that I hung out with, they were all a part of some gang somewhere. Mm. Um, but, you know, kind of uh, like um, like my fit parents, they treated me differently. And so they kind of adopted me. I was I was almost like a mascot um, and, and that they they protected me, mm. um, you know, and and. and <laughs> I remember one, one wanting to go and hang out with them somewhere. And, you know, they were like, yeah, this is not for you. Um, mm. They called me chap dog. This is not for you, chap dog. You, you stay back on this one. You know, let, let us, let us go do this. Um, and so, why? you know, why, like what, what was, when you say, when you say they kind of adopted you, like their mascot kind of protected you, like what, what was happening in those, as you look back now as, as, as an adult, what, what kind of, what kind of does that show you that they were protecting you from? You know what I mean? Now yeah. You're significantly less naive. <laughs> um, you know, they recognized the situation that I had and they recognized the, the trajectory that I was on. Uh, they recognized my faith. Um, and so it, it was any, any one of those things that it was just kind of like, okay, you're different. Um, you know, uh, there, there's the, we have to survive. You don't. Um, we, we've got to make do you've, you've got it made. Um, you know, that, that kind of came out, uh, you know, so it was a combination of church boy. Um, you know, it's like we're, 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 we're going to protect the church boy. There's also this element of, you know, academically, um, you're better than us. And so you have a chance to actually make it. And so we want to protect that chance that you have, uh, by not letting you get mixed up with us. Um, and then, you know, I mean, some of them had seen and, and been a part of really hard things in their life. And I had not. Um, and they, they also knew that as well. So, that's, right. so it's like, you've not seen what we've seen. So yeah. we're going to, we're going to continue to uh, shield you from that. So, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Right. Uh, you know, it, even into college, I remember coming home a couple of times for college, hanging out with the same crew and you know, it was, it was pretty much the same thing. You know, it's just kind of like, this is not for you. Um, yeah. You know, hey, we're going to go and hang out at this party. It's like, uh, that's that's not the kind of party you want to hang out with. Right. Um, so, you know, go and study. And, and sometimes <laughs> it was joking and it was yeah. um, not fun. But, you know, in sense, yeah. I kind of appreciate it. Uh, in hindsight, you know, again, it's part of the community. Right. Um, so, you know, another something that that was significant, you know, as I said, you know, because of where I was born and how my parents raised me, you know, there was actually in my mind, especially leaving Gary, Indiana, um, that, yeah, racism was uh, a thing of the past, or at least systemic racism was a thing of the past, um, you know, and so, and I'm, I'm a very, very, very slow learner. 
Um, so when I first got my first car, sophomore year um, of college at Indiana University, uh, I noticed this thing that would happen to me pretty much around once every month or every other month or so. Um, you know, I would get pulled over by either the uh, Indiana State Police, the IU, you know, IU had its own police. Um, they would stop me or the Bloomington City Police um, would stop me. I mean, it was pretty regular. It, it got to the point where I kept my license, registration, um, and insurance card safety clipped to each other uh, in the sunglasses department. So I didn't have to like go and reach in a glove box. And, um, and I just used my student ID for when I had to, you know, for other times I needed ID, but I kept my driver's license in the car because it was so regular. Yeah. Um, and I never connected it um, to uh, sy anything systemic. It was just kind of like, I, I just took the cop's word for it, right? So I'm um, sorry to pull you over. You fit the description of someone that we're looking for. And I was like, you know, it, it, wow, this is really systemic, you know, because like even when I left Bloomington, um, you know, and went other places, I would have the same thing happen, you know, cops would stop me. So uh, I don't know if you remember, but like it, you go into a post office to send packages um, they have wanted signs up in different parts of the, uh, you know, in a certain part of the post office. And I remember sitting there and investigating and looking at each of these, you know, wanted um, posters to say, okay, which of these guys looks like me? Because, right. man, I really, I've really gotten a lot of interest, you know, from, from the police. So there's must be, oh, that guy kind of looks like me. I, I guess that's who they're looking for. Yeah. Um, you know, again, a naive, really trying to believe the best. Um, right. And so... It's not until, uh, you know, actually after college, um, I'm hanging out with a, a bunch of African-American guys, uh, you know, right out of, uh, you know this, your, your audience probably doesn't know this, but right out of college, I was, I was living in the city of Chicago. Um, and so I'm hanging out with some guys in the city of Chicago and uh, I'm late to hanging out with them. And, you know, they ask, hey, you know, what, what made you so late? It's like, oh, I got stopped by the cops. They were you know, looking for some guy. Uh, and then uh, it's the first time I get introduced to the term, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, you got a DWB. Um, <laughs> and so and it comes from this one, this kid from, you know, from Michigan, black kid from Michigan, who, you know, by his definition would say hey, he's the whitest guy that, you know, he's the whitest black guy he knows, you know, right. he, he jokes about it himself. Um, I don't, I don't ever say, I, I would never uh, encourage anybody to use that. Um, right. But, you know, so like he's very much like, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the hood and all of this. But, yeah, I get DWBs, too. And so it's just kind of like uh, and then it started this conversation because, you know, everybody that was in this group of uh, men that I was hanging out with, uh, most of them were from the south side of Chicago. Uh, but we were from all over somewhere in the Midwest. And we just talked about it. And it was just like it was eye opening to me that all of us who were brought together by, you know, just being professionals in the city of Chicago, all had this common shared experience uh, with law enforcement, regardless of whether we lived in the city of Chicago, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. Um, and that was the first time that I really got a glimpse that like, wow, this thing is, this thing is real. And so that period of time that I got stopped uh, once a month, you know, it wasn't a manhunt for somebody that looked like me. It was really more attached to just one thing that I looked like, and that was being black. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just, I started to tie all the things together. And it, it was, um, it was quite challenging for me to accept. Um, and, you know, but with time, it's just kind of like, 
I, I did begin to accept it. Um, like this is real. And so uh, it turned into um, when I would get stopped by cops after that, you know, I would find myself getting, you know, this is, you know, pre Eric Garner, um, uh, you know, and Mike Brown, but I would find myself getting, you know, upset with the cops. Cause it's like the only reason you pull me over is cause I'm black. And so um, give them a hard time, you know, uh, you know, and some of them were, were kind and, you know, I'm sorry. And, but some of them were like, you know, give me a hard time back. I mean, you know, as I got older, it, it definitely happened less than it did when I was in college. Like I said, college, you know, there was one year where I felt like it was every month that I was getting stopped. Um, you know, and so it would probably happen once every three or four months, uh, which is kind of like what it is now. Um, but, you know, I would just, I would be so hold, like- hold, hold on one second. Sure. So, so even now, today- Yeah. You are the picture of suburban goodness, married, <laughs> three kids living in suburbia you're getting pulled over once a quarter ish yeah not ish for 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 like because you fit his description because really there's there's just no reason well it's nuanced a lot now fitting the description kind of um left somewhere in uh the mid 2000s um it's usually it's, I mean, it's been weird stuff now. Hey, you drove really close to the center line. You didn't cross it, but, you know, I just wanted to give you a warning. Um, what was, uh, you saw me coming and you slowed down or um, you didn't make that turn at the right angle. Uh, you didn't switch that. I mean, it was, it's all stuff that it was just like, we're not going to, we're not going to give you a ticket, but just wanted to warn you about that. Yeah. It's definitely taken a, a different yeah, yeah, feel yeah. to it now. Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's still like once a quarter. Yeah, it's, I mean, it still that, happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get pulled over. I probably get pulled over about once a year. And it's always because I'm stupid. Right. Always. And, and I, I always deserve it. And I very rarely get a ticket. <laughs> and, and, I, and I need to parse out that I, you know, I'm want to distinguish between getting pulled over and then getting pulled over something I actually did. Right. Um, I mean, there are times when I've gotten pulled over for, you know, like, yeah, I was doing 80 and, uh, you know, and a a 65. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I don't don't count those. Right. Um, Right. Absolutely. You know, there was one summer that I got bookend tickets, uh, Memorial day and labor day. Um, you know, like, (laughs) and both of them were just kind of like, yep. I, yep. I did that. So not those, and those right. were speed traps, you know, so right. I, I can recognize that, but this is like, you know, just I'm driving somewhere and yeah, I, I get, I get stopped. Yeah. So I, one of the things, um, over the last couple of months after, um, after everything came to light about uh, Ahmad Arbery, mm-hmm. um, I saw, and I think what I think what hit it home for me, uh, what you know, the video, everything is just. Uh, but when I saw your Facebook post, um, saying, "I jog in my neighborhood," today is the first time I, I wondered if I should jog in my neighborhood. That that for me was kind of this. Wait, there. That describes something different yeah. about 
the black experience in America and the white experience in America. Yeah. Because when a white, when something, when, when something happens to a white guy, I don't have any identification with them. Uh-huh. Do, do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Whereas you saw what happened to Ahmaud Arbery and said, I need to think about my actions differently. Can you, and, and I know that, that this might be asking a lot, um, and if it is, man, just be like, dude, no, I'm not, I'm not going there, but, um, can, know, can you walk us, yeah. walk us yeah. through some of that, some yeah. of that kind of thinking or feeling or connection? Yeah. Well, and it's not that that made me actually start thinking about jogging. I, I actually already do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was on, when I, I like to run, I'm not a, like a long distance runner. I, I run like a mile or two at a time. Um, but I run I would, when I'm chased. It hasn't happened since I was in high school. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I, I had aspirations of being a baseball player at some point, and that was my my desire to stay in shape. I did not know that. Oh yeah. How did I not know this? Oh yeah, I I, I tried to go out for the IU baseball team. Um, Dude. Yeah, I, I love you. Know I love the game, but yeah, I know, I, but I I didn't realize you were like. Oh yeah! I, oh man, we're gonna have to get you out for when we're gonna have to. If Ethan gets to Flor, goes to Florida next uh, this, this coming spring, man, we're gonna have to get you out for a game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would love it. So. But yeah, I used to get stopped by cops, and when I was in Bloomington, uh, going for a run, and so uh, you know there was. I don't know if you are familiar, how familiar you are with Bloomington's geography, but there's a place called North Fee Lane um, mm-hmm. that has a lot of fraternities and sororities and i don't know fee lane very well (laughs) very well my friend i would go visit that alpha chi omega house any chance that's right of course how could i forget that (laughs) (laughs) but there would be times i'd be running through that neighborhood and i don't remember why my route took me there i think i was living at a dorm nearby um but if i was going for a run in that neighborhood you better believe uh the the IU cops would, you know, flash a light on me or, or, you know, where are you going? You know, what are you doing? Um, and so I was, that, that began to make me conscious of, you know, where I run and what I look like. And, um, you know, as a poor college student, you just run whatever you have. So it's right. gym shorts and a t-shirt. Um, but as a, as an adult, you know, I dress when I'm going for a run, I want to look like I just ran a marathon. I want it mm. to be super obvious. Um, I listen to music on my phone. Uh, I don't use wireless headphones because I want it to be obvious that what's in my hand is a phone. And the best way for that to be obvious is for me to have earbuds that are attached to what's in my hand. Um, My route, uh, I want to make sure I don't go down the same street twice. Uh, So, you know, I have to, you know, our little neighborhood is teeny tiny. So it's like I have to make sure I zigzag just the right way. So before Amon Arbery, those are things that were already true. And so when that happened, and, and uh, you know, I'll just be honest with you, um, Falando Castillo watching his video wrecked me forever in such a way that I've not watched a single video since. Mm. Um, and so I, I've not seen the video, don't know what it looks like and, and have no desire to. Um, but when I heard the description of what happened, um, I, I stopped. I, I didn't. I didn't go for runs. I didn't go for walks. I mean, we're in a pandemic. Um, 
right now. And my only outlet has been, you know, I either run or walk. Well, every day I run or walk. Most days it's walking because uh, I'm old and sore and I can't run multiple. I can't run every day. Um, But I'm outside every morning uh, around somewhere between 6 and 7 a.m. And so when Ahmaud Arbery happened, I I was done. Um, You know, that, that Facebook post said, I think I'll use the treadmill, you know, and so like, um, it took me a good two weeks uh, to to be able to um, go outside again. You know, I mean, part of it's wearing a pandemic and, and that was my only outlet. Um, but yeah, and it's just the, it's just that, you know, that feeling of somebody mistaking you or miss, you know, whatever for something that you're not, um, and what can happen horribly from that. So, uh, you know, I'll tell you another story kind of related to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if you know, are you, if you're familiar with this thing called geocaching. Um, okay. So when our uh, middle child was born, my son and I, who was three at the time, he's 13 now, um, we became geocachers as a way of giving him some time to, you know, going from being the only child to being um, one of two and now one of three, we would go geocaching. Um, we, and we did it a lot. And so, you know, what, what you do in geocaching is that there's a hidden object somewhere and you use your phone or GPS device to find it. You read clues um, and hints. And so um, for probably a good three or four years, I was geocaching without really being aware of, of what is, especially if I didn't have my kids with me, what I looked like. So here I am, a black guy who's standing around looking for something, um, you know, looking for this hidden object, reading my phone and then looking under uh, picnic tables or in trees, um, you know. And so I had multiple incidents happen where uh, I would either be confronted by someone or, uh, you know, people would flee in terror if, if I was <laughs> if I stood around too long. Um, I mean, there was, there was this one time there was a geocache hidden near a playground and I'm looking in a tree and I see a mom scoop up her child and run, run away and get in the van and drive off. Um, yeah. You're so scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there was this one incident where I'm, I'm looking for a geocache and, um, short end of a long, you know, basically I'm, I'm boxed in, uh, in my car. So I'm, uh, it's like, okay, this is not the location. I get in my car to drive away and one car blocks me in the front and another car blocks me in the back. And what are you doing here? What's going on? What, why are you in this neighborhood? Um, you know, and so again, you know, I've dealt with this before. So it's just kind of like, you know, I don't have to tell you anything, you know, I'm going to call the cops. I've done nothing, you know, leave me alone. Um, and so right around the same time is when the Trayvon Martin case kind of goes down, um, you know, and, and I don't need you to have a certain opinion of, of what, you know, who's right, who's wrong or whatever. Um, I, I, I clearly have one. Um, but even if you, you, you chalk it up to a big misunderstanding, what you have is a black kid who's walking through a neighborhood at night, who looks suspicious to someone and ends up dead because of that. Um, and so, that happened around the same time as this being boxed in by a car. 
um, mm. incident happened. Um, and honestly, I, I've not been geocaching since. Um, and so it, it, ironically, you know, the daughter that we started geocaching about, you know, with she's 10 years old and we have a seven year old who's never been. Uh, and they were like, hey, let's let's resurrect that. Let's, you know, um, go out and do it. And it's like, man, there's trauma behind that. But at the same time, it's like, I'd love to do that with the, with, with my girls now. Uh, my right. son, I have oldest son and then two girls. Um, and they're all for it. But, you know, there's a reason why I stopped doing it. Um, you know, so like I'm, and I said all of this to say, I am constantly aware of what my presence is like or, or what I might look like or be misconstrued as um, wherever I am. Uh, except for, except for honestly, when I'm in Gary, uh, yeah. when I'm in Gary, it's like, I blend, I, you know, I, I belong right. here. Um, but outside of that, when I'm, when I'm somewhere else, I'm very cognizant and very aware of my surroundings. Um, and my, uh, propensity to look like a threat. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why does it seem like, or, or not, it doesn't seem like, why do why do folks in the black community so deeply identify with other folks in the black community? Right. So, you know, there's such a, there's just such a, a close identification with, with, with people. Um, something happens to one, it kind of feels like the response is what happened to all of us. Whereas like a white guy, no, no, I don't have any connection there. Like, I don't, sure. You know what I mean? How, yeah. Why, why do you think, why do you think that is, or, or, or um, why is that? You know, I would say that, it, you know, there, there's a, we're not a social monolith, right? So right. we're all very different, but there is a shared experience and a shared history with which we can identify. So, you know, going back to that bowling alley, uh, that's where in Chicago, when I was getting together with the black guys, it was a bowling alley. We went bowling. Um, you know, and black people love to bowl. I don't, I don't know if you knew that. That's yes. a, that's a, yes. that's I, really I, big. Yeah, I've, I've actually learned that uh, yeah. living here in Ipsy. <clears throat> yeah, there, there was a time where uh, I owned my own bowling ball and shoes. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, they were, I bought them from a bowling alley that was throwing them away. But, you know, it was like, that was, it was important to have my own. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I go back to that bowling alley experience, I've had so many similar experiences to that since then of, you know, this shared history, the shared knowledge, the shared um, experience, uh, you know, after Mike Brown, um, you know, I was at a, I was living in Indianapolis. I had been, we had been there for, I think at that point, um, four or five years, uh, you know, so brand new sets of friends, but you know, and a, a good number of them African-American friends. And so we had never had a talk about, you know, law enforcement. And so it, just with this new group of guys that I've never hung out with before, we all went around and just shared our story of like, Hey, this is, this is what, this is my worst experience mm. with law enforcement. Um, this is the the worst encounter that I had. And so there is a sense of like, when you see what happens um, to uh, Trayvon, when you see what happens to Tamir, when you see what happened um, to Philando Castillo, when you see what happened to George Floyd, when you see the, when you see what happened to Ahmaud Arbery, it, it harkens back to some experience that you had that were it not for the grace of God, um, 
could have gone another way and you yourself would be a hashtag uh, in some way, shape or form. And so there, there's that part of it on this particular issue. Um, and then there's just a general camaraderie. I, I feel like it's, it's diminishing with each generation. Um, but, you know, there's just a general camaraderie that you have with, with other black people um, that stems, I would say, you know, I, I experientially can't prove this, but I think it goes all the way back um, to the first settlements, um, you know, after the emancipation. Um, but like when you see someone who's black, you know, hey, what's up? You know, how's it going? Yeah, um, yeah. I graduated from IU. Uh, it was the first time that I had sat down with some of the people that I walked by campus uh, a bunch, you know, and it's just kind of like, and I remember having conversations like, yeah, I don't know your name, but I see you all the time. And I speak right. to you all the time. Um, there's just this sense of like, you know, we're, we're in this together. Um, you know, when I was in the, the biology department, you know, first day of class, we're the black people in the class and you find them and that that's your new study group. Um, nobody gave you a rule uh, saying that you have to do this. Nobody um, assigned us. Um, we didn't get an extra grade for it. Um, but, but we knew that like, this is, this is our community and this is how we're going to support each other. Um, and it's, again, it's comes from the narrative of, you know, being in a community together um, and doing this together. There, there's not a huge, I mean, there, there is definitely where, you know, the community, the individual is made up, of, I mean, the community is made up of individuals, um, but the need of the community exceeds that of the single individual yeah. um, in any circumstance. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's insightful. Reminds me of the, uh, two, two blackish episodes. Um, the one where, uh, you know, you get, you, you talking about your experience at IU and seeing people, you know, and, and him, him, uh, you know, getting on his, on his son for not giving the other black kid at school the nod. <laughs> and, yes. and then, uh, and then there was a, a you know, an end, an end credit scene where, uh, where him and, uh, the lead character. And then, and then I, the guy's name is Charlie and they're, they're, they're going through all the, all the black people in America and how they know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so those, those, it, those, it just, it just kind of hammers home. It just all, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So, it, so Jermaine, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if you can, if you want to speak to this or not, um, or if you'd be, or if it just would not, not be, be good, but, you know, I was on staff with crew, um, mm -hmm. and I've been to a national staff conference, mm -hmm. I've seen, I've seen the makeup of crew, you know? And, uh, so your experience, your experience, uh, on staff with crew is not all that different than your experience at IU, Correct. um, where, you know, you're, you're in a, you're in a pretty significant minority crew is a very conservative organization. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, as, it's about as evangelical as you can get. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how, how does that experience play out? Because that, that's, that's so different than you're, you're just, you're, you're kind of in this very unique place in, in my mind, um, where you are in the heart. I mean, you're in the heart of white evangelical land and, yeah. um, you know, kind of similar to my friend, Will, from our first interview who, is a Detroit police officer and a pastor and a teacher 
in the city of Detroit. Like, I mean, he, he kind of walked all those different lines and here yeah. you are in the middle of, um, I mean, you live in a town that literally has a Jesus land or Holy land experience or whatever it is. So, um, you know, you are in the shadow of, um, you know, of these, of these white evangelical yeah. places and, and, and you're in the midst of one of the biggest white evangelical institutions, uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, what, how is that, how, what's, what's been your experience in that, in that context? Um, <laughs> and, and you can say, and you say, we, we really can't do this publicly and that, and that's totally okay. Um, yeah, no, I mean, there, there's, I, I'm not really that shy about, you know, uh, uh, my experience in, in crew or, or anything like that. Um, you know, there's a couple of things that, that happened during my, my years with crew um, that, that kind of have shaped my experience or, or at least given me longevity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one is, you know, I, I came to uh, crew to work with what was called the impact movement. It's still called the impact movement. It's no longer a part of crew. It's now it's uh, an independent organization. Um, and so I got to serve with them. You know, I've been with crew for, 23 years and i think that i served with that with uh impact for 15 or 16 of that those years um and so you know you've got this predominantly african-american space uh, nestled into this white evangelical organization and so you know that helped create a lot of longevity you know and having that space um even when it became its own organization we were still um crew employees seconded to this other organization for as long as we were there. Uh, and it gave me, uh, again, a community that, that understands. It's really been more the last six years that's, that, the, that has been, that experience has been really different because I, I don't, I, I now serve with, uh, serving the campus ministry of crew. Um, and I'm a part of the entire campus ministry, which as you said, is, is predominantly white. And so, um, there are things that you know you realize with time that you you do um, uh, to translate yourself, uh, and, and it becomes so uh, so regular. So I don't know. It almost becomes autonomous. It is autonomous. Um, you know, one one small way that I, I can demonstrate that is that I I don't talk like this when I'm in Gary. I don't talk like this, mm. and I didn't realize the extent to which I did that until um. I'm taking my son to soccer uh, one day and uh, my brother calls me, uh, lives, lives in Northwest Indiana, uh, you know, where, where we grew up. And so um, talked to him on the phone for about 20 minutes. And my son points out to me, he's like, dad, whenever you talk to somebody in Gary, um, your voice changes and you talk really different. Uh, and it was, it was, I didn't realize how much I, I was translating myself yeah. or, or, or contextualizing myself. And so, you know, you end up in a space like this and you do that um, to the extent that you don't realize just how much you do it mm. in some ways. And then you get tired of doing it in other ways. Um, and so, you know, I, one of the things that I, I've tried to adopt, I, I don't do great at this, um, is having um, short accounts, uh, you know. OK, so taking a half step back, yeah. uh, you, you 
you can face these things called microaggressions. Um, and so, you know, I know that words like that can have yeah, like- Yeah, all the, all the conservatives watching this just went, Whoa! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the way I like to think of it or, or translate it to make it, you know, uh, understandable. Yeah. Um, imagine something that annoys you slightly. It, it's not a big deal. You know, you're not going to get into a fight over it. You're not going to break a friendship over it. Um, you know, I, I think uh, when you think of microaggressions or, or this kind of annoyance across the genders, it can be the toilet seat, leaving the toilet seat up. It's yeah. like annoying to women, um, yeah. you know, and sometimes, you know, um, they'll get really mad. But really when that happens is like when the toilet seat is left up once, no big deal. When you do it, every day trying to get it in the screen and it keeps going and it keeps going you reach this point where it's just like it's happened so many times and i'm so annoyed by it one more time and like ah right um and so when you're in in a predominantly white space like this you know there are things that happen um where it's like ah, man i i'd really that was that wasn't cool uh, and so you have the you, you have this a conversation in your mind. I, I was talking with a young lady about this the other day. Um, you have a conversation in your mind. Um, is it worth bringing that up? And uh, what you can tend to do, um, being the only or or one of few in white evangelical space, is you get to this place of, uh, nah, I don't want to bring it up this time. No, nah, I'm not going to bring it up this time. And it's the same thing and it happens multiple times. It's like, man, if I bring it up now, then it's gonna be, you know, why didn't you bring this up sooner? And, uh, you know, and, and you find yourself just in this catch 22 and it's just, you know, you get to a place where it's like, okay, forget it, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and so when I say short accounts, um, and, and I'm not great at it, cause you still have that conversation in your mind, but it's like, right. if I face something, I, I need to be able to tell you. Um, and, and there are a few things that's just kind of like, you know, uh, I mean, it's real. It can be really small things, like you know, I, um, sending me the brown fist bump emoji. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm brown, you're not brown. What, right. yeah. what is that about? Yeah. Um, you know, what's up, brother? You know, it's like, oh yeah. man, come on. You know, no, no, no. Um, right. And so, you know, try to keep short accounts with with the people that I work with, work closest with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. So that, you know, those things don't weigh on me over time. Um, and then, you know, like I said, what created my longevity um, for the first uh, two, three quarters of my career was uh, having, you know, the black space that the impact movement created for me. And so I'm in a time now where it's like, okay, that's not going to be, that's not going to happen at crew. Uh, and so both in Indianapolis and now that we've moved here, you know, making sure that we have space like that or similar to that. And so, um, you know, we're a multi-ethnic family. My wife is white, um, you know, third generation Dutch. Uh, and so our kids are multi-ethnic, you know, they're both uh, my ethnicity and my wife's ethnicity and neither at the same time. And so we really value going to a multi-ethnic church that kind of represents our family. Um, and so for us, a multi-ethnic church is, you know, I think the standard definition is, you know, not more than 20% of us, um, not more than 80% of a single culture. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a good definition, that's not ours. Ours is like, it has to be half, yeah. at least half black. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we've been able, we've been really fortunate to find places where we've been able to uh, have that sort of experience. Um, and what it does is that you're, you're around people that uh, live with multi-ethnicity. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to send you the brown fist bump emoji. You know, they, they made that mistake, you know, four or five years ago. So right. and it's like, okay, I, I know not to do that. Right, right, um, right. And so being in crew means, you know, making sure that I have outlets like that, uh, making sure that our family has outlets like that. Um, and then realizing the, the role that, that, you know, I'm in, you know, so I still have a significant connection to people of color, to ethnic minority communities, to black people. Um, yet I'm in this large white organization, um, you know, and so there, there's change that needs to happen in our organization. And so how do we begin to exact change in that, um, you know, and so you, you yeah. said, you know, unique, unique position, um, and this is this is uh, what you juggle um, being in, in kind of the role that I'm in. Um, you've got an organization that you're you're navigating and you're hoping to see some change in, um, and change is slow. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, you're making you're making challenges. Um, you're you're making people uncomfortable on a regular basis. Uh, you mentioned staff conference before, um, where we gather all six thousand of our staff into a. Um, basketball gym in Colorado, um, you know, back in 2015, I got asked to be a part of helping put that on. Um, and, you know, questions were asked, how would you do this? Uh, well, before I even said yes, I said, you know, it can't be, you know, the same conference. And so it's like, we have yeah. to, we have to talk about things that are uncomfortable. And so for the last few conferences, we've talked about, um, we've talked about things in the ways that ethnic minorities would talk about them. And mm. so it's, it's been an uncomfortable conversation, yeah. um, you know, but since 2015, I've seen numerous people uh, say, you know, like I'll show up to a campus and it's like, there's a thriving African-American movement or there's a thriving Hispanic movement. There's like, mm. you know, what, what prompted you guys to do this? Well, I was at uh, crew 15, which is what the conference was called. And, and I felt really uncomfortable and I really hated it, but then God really did something in my heart and I felt like, Hey, this is what we need to do. You know, yeah. I've had conversations like that, um, multiple conversations like that over the years where it's like, it's, it's happening, it's slow. And then you've got, you know, this new generation um, of people of color, because now what's happening in our organization is that it actually is getting more diverse. I mean, it, it's still lily white. Um, but we, we've seen um, our staff, the numbers of ethnic minorities join our organization really start to increase. Mm. And so, uh, you know, for them, they're like, you know, we need to change this organization. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, we're, we're working as fast as we can. And it's like, it's not fast enough. We need to burn it down and start all over. And it's like, my kind of people right there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you sit in between the two of those and it, the young people are really great because it, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, you, you can translate things for so long that you don't even realize you're translating. And, right. and similarly, you can tolerate things for so long that you don't even realize that you're tolerating or, or it's so far down the list that, you know, you don't even think about it anymore. And right. so, you know, they, they've challenged everything. And so I value um, the youth. Uh, in their voice and yeah. what they bring to the conversation uh, and how much they challenge me with an organization as we continue to try to lead change. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and we still have a long, long, long way to go. 
Um, but there are things that are happening now um, that would not have happened five years ago. Um, you know, especially as we as we as an organization respond to um, the violence in our nation and, and what happened to George Floyd and others. Um, you know, that would things like that that wouldn't have happened five years ago. They're happening now. Um, and to the young generation, it's like, it's not good enough. And, and I'm like, it's right, but we still need to celebrate that it happened. So let's celebrate for a, for a moment, but let's continue to work on change. Yeah, for sure. Dude, good stuff, man. Good stuff. I, I really appreciate you. I, I thank you for, um, I mean, we're, I, I want to respect your time. I, I told, I, I, I said about an hour we're we're getting close to, to eclipsing that, um, but uh, if there was, if there's one, if there's one thing that you kind of wish people just, if there's one thing you wish white folks could kind of wrap their minds around, what what might that be? Um, <laughs> I, I know it's I know it's a huge question, um, but you know if, if somebody kind of like you know when you're when you're given a message right like you you know yeah. we we all we all got trained right. You know, I want yeah. them to I want folks to walk away with one thing. So, if people listen to this podcast for the last hour. What's the What's the one thing you, if they would walk away from this conversation with one thing? Yeah. What yeah. What would you What would you want it to be? Well, and and I'm going to make an assumption of like ultra con, not ultra conservative, but like conservative. Um, you probably you know don't know what to think of these issues or. You know, there are things about talking through these things that make you feel really uncomfortable. What I, what I would really say is, um, if there's one thing I want you to know, I want you to make it personal. I want you to think about like this as someone's story, uh, not as um, a political meta narrative, um, but as someone's actual experience, uh, something that someone is actually living out. Um, and then I want you to consider you know, I know you said one thing. Um, yeah, you, you could go with two. <laughs> what, are you, what are the things that you're thinking about this and then how are you spreading them? You know, one of my biggest concerns uh, is, is not just, you know, and, and I'm, I'll use our relationship. It's yeah. not just what you think and our relationship, um, but you know, your son and my son will be playing ball together and my son might experience racism, how is your son gonna respond to that? Um, So, you know, think of this in terms of like somebody's story, somebody's life, somebody's child um, that is experiencing, you know, racism and they don't know what to do with it. Um, Or or they don't wanna endure it alone. Um, So, yeah, make it personal. Um, And if you have a hard time making it personal, Find a person to make it personal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jermaine, man, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time um, and expending the emotional, spiritual capital that uh, that I know this conversation uh, cost you. So yeah. I really, really appreciate it. Um, guys, uh, just want to encourage you uh, to, you know, Subscribe to Love Well if you thought this conversation was helpful, insightful in any way. Um, share it with somebody else. And the uh, easiest way to do that is by subscribing. Uh, you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter uh, at Daniel M. Rose. 
uh, or Jermaine. I know he'd be happy to connect with you too. Uh, at Jermaine C. I'm still so jealous <laughs> of your Twitter name. Um, so uh, you connect with him there. And um, uh, the archive, the video archive of this message uh, will be at youtube.com slash Daniel Rose. And uh, the audio of this will, uh, the audio only version will get published on Friday. Um, so guys, thanks again for being with us. And until next week, love well.